so today we're going to finish up this series on uh, God and government. Probably some of you are going, whew, good, good, Get, move on to something else. <clears throat> That's fine. Next week, just so you know, we'll have Randy and Edie Nelson with us, our missionaries, and they'll be sharing with us. We'll also have Communion Sunday next week, so um, you can come prepared for that as well. But I want to uh, just remind us, this is our last week in this series, and, and uh, we've been doing this for a couple of weeks now just to inform you as, as believers as you walk into that voting booth or cast your ballot that you do it with um, an educated vote closely aligned as it can be to God's word and God's principles. Uh, we know that his word is the final authority. Amen? Amen. Uh, we don't serve man, we serve God. And so um, when it comes to the question of how we should vote and things like that. Obviously, people have taken sides, and we don't want that to become a, a divisive thing. Um, but on the, same, on the same manner, we want to make sure that we represent our Lord in every way possible. As people of faith, as people who follow Christ, uh, we've been given God's word. We've been given his standard. We've been given his instructions, his rules, the Bible. And it gives us insight on every aspect of our life, how he expects us to live. And that includes uh, even when it comes to politics. And so we want to uh, just remind you, we've been talking about kingdom thinking, and, and we talked about a kingdom worldview. You hear people talk about a, a, a secular worldview or a Christian worldview. Well, I think we have to have a kingdom worldview, which says we believe in a visible demonstration and manifestation of a comprehensive rule of God over every area of life. We don't get to pick and choose where we allow God into the picture and where we kick him out. But that's exactly what, unfortunately, our society and our own government, our nation has done. And so we said that rather than focus on the two parties, we're the elephant or the, the uh, donkey, we're, we're focusing on the lamb, <laughs> uh, the kingdom of God. And uh, kingdom voting is an opportunity. It's a responsibility of committed Christians to partner with God by expanding his rule in society through our civil government. And we said we want to be a kingdom independent because no party, one or the other, or any of the others, um, will 100% represent what is biblical or what you hold to as a Christian. Uh, They shouldn't hold your allegiance forever. And so we have to be aware of that. And so we looked at God's sovereignty over government. We looked at the four systems of government, self-government, family government, church and then civil government. We asked the question, well, what side is God on? And we saw back in Joshua where he said, I'm not on either side. Uh, I'm going to carry out my plan, not yours. We looked at government as a divine institution, the overarching role of civil government, and the intended outcome of a biblically-based government, and that is freedom, the freedom of the people. And so the role of government, as we discussed last week, was, as outlined in Romans 13, was to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment for what? For freedom to flourish. If the government is weighing heavy on our shoulders, it's not allowing us to be free. The role of government, biblically, is to protect the righteous and punish the unrighteous or the evildoers. That's the main role of government. And so today we want to look at this message, understanding what's at stake. 
understanding what's at stake. You know, I want to read a couple of verses right off the, the bat. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness, what? Exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And then Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. <laughs> uh, Every four years in this nation, we face a massive decision. We face a vote, a vote to elect the president of our country, the United States of America. And the framers of the Constitution, by the way, understood that the presidency itself was both revolutionary and unprecedented. It was brand new. The role was outlined in the Constitution. But it was made real to the nation early on through the person of who? George Washington, right? Our first president. The only man that the founders could envision as the nation's first chief executive. And so in times of war or in times of peace, in prosperity, in pandemic, America has, Americans have exercised the vote. Why? Because we understand that this is the most important role that we play in deciding the future of our nature, or of our nation. It's been entrusted to us. The shape of its laws, the character of its government. Every four years, we're told, no doubt, especially recently, this election is the most important one. <laughs> it's the most important vote of your lifetime. And just to be clear, in a very real sense, it is. It is. It should be taken very seriously. And the reason is now more clear than ever that the issues that loom before this nation and its voters are growing more urgent. And the divide between the two major political parties, at least, grow only wider. In 2020, Americans, Christians, must realize that the two major parties represent two radically different versions of our nation and of its future. It represents two different understandings of the role of government, two very different ways of reading the U.S. Constitution, and I would say even two vastly different moralities. And so, with so much at stake, I think Christians need to vote thinking clearly, carefully, and more importantly, biblically, about the choice that lies before us. A salute to our flag of our nation has a statement in it. It says, one nation, what? Under God. Now that was added to the flag salute in 1954. And we know what was the, the founding father's intended intent there. It was that this nation be under God. Not just any God, by the way, but the God of Scripture. You see that just in the original writings. Um, nations are obligated to worship the true God. They're obligated to worship the true God. And Scripture points out that there are dire consequences 
that will come upon them if they fail to do that. So I want to just begin by establishing some very fundamental truths. First of all, man was created by God in the image of God for what? The glory of God, right? Man was created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. That's a very fundamental Christian truth. It's a very biblical truth. And that means every person is given as a part of being human (laughs) the divine image of God and the knowledge of God's nature and the knowledge of God's law. Now, you may not listen to it, but the role, the goal is that that law of God is written in every heart. We have a conscience. And the truth about God resides in every heart. So that the Bible says that if they do not come to that true God, what does it say? They are without what? Excuse. They're without excuse. Now, all you have to do is look at human beings. We know that there is an instinct within every human being to worship. To worship. It's strong in every soul. Everyone worships something. See, God has designed the human being, the human soul, to worship who? Him. To worship Him. But unfortunately, the fallenness of humanity causes human beings to turn from worshiping the one true God to what? Worshiping just about anything else, including themselves, right? Mankind rejects the true law of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.10. He says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And it says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You notice that last phrase, the whole what world will be held accountable to God. Not just the Christians. <laughs> so man is created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. And he is commanded by God to worship him. Secondly... All people are to worship only the true God. You don't get to pick and choose who you're going to worship. Mankind worships, we get that, they worship just about anything. But his sinfulness, his fallenness, what does it do? It directs him away from the one true God to what? All the false gods. And trust me, there's a lot of false gods out there. As Jesus said in John 4.22, you remember he was speaking to the, the Samaritan woman. And he says, you know not what you worship. Remember her question, where do we worship? The fathers say worship over here. They say worship there. And he says, you know not what you worship. J.C. Ryle said this. He says, any worship is pleasing to the natural heart. Any worship is more pleasing to the natural heart than worshiping God in the way our Lord Jesus describes it as worshiping in what spirit and truth. 
See, the natural heart, left in its natural state, goes in the opposite direction of God. That's why Scripture constantly commands everyone to come back from that deviation to worship the true God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, God declares, there is no God besides me. There are no other gods. They're all idols. They're not real. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul indicates that all pagan gods are of the nations are demon-driven. See, there's satanic counterfeits. There's demonic delusions going on in our society today because everybody thinks, well, you worship your God, I'll worship my God. There's only one God, my friends, that one true God. All the rest are some sort of demon worship. I mean, think of the first commandment. You shall, what, have no other gods besides me. You shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In Exodus 34, it even says, you shall not worship them or serve them. He's a jealous God, but if you do, you're going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third, on the fourth generations of those who hate me. See, worshiping the true God is the way to go. And when you do that, the Bible declares you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Worship any other God, small g, and you will fall under a curse or judgment. And some people say, well, that Old Testament stuff, doesn't that just apply to Israel? No, it doesn't. Well, how do you know that? Think about it. Do you remember the the town of Nineveh? The nation of Nineveh? He was told to go and preach, right? The gospel, basically, to the people of Nineveh. Of Nineveh and, and they were pagans. They were non-Jews. See, the expectation to worship the true God is not just for Israel. And it's not just for Christians. It's for every nation. And God pronounced doom on a pagan nation that did not worship him. That's why a lot of people believe that our nation is the greatest nation in the world. Because it's founded on Judeo-Christian principles that come right out of God's Word. There's no way to get around that. You can tear down all the statues you want. It's right there. It's part of history. Now, they want to rewrite history so you don't notice that. But even the Lord Jesus Christ said, you shall love the Lord, what? Your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Why? Because there is only one God, only the true God. All humanity is commanded to worship that one true God. And the fundamental reason, the fundamental plan of God in this, as far as the nations are concerned, is to bless the nations that acknowledge him as the true God. Now, we're not talking about somebody's personal salvation here. We're talking about a national recognition of who is the true God. So man was created in the image of God for the glory of God. Secondly, all people are to worship only the true God. And then thirdly, failure to worship the true God and to worship any other God, guess what? 
it brings God's judgment. It brings God's judgment. And it certainly brings judgment on individuals, but it also brings judgment on nations. The judgment from God becomes inevitable when you turn from the one true God, you turn from his law. And when you turn from his law, what? You're you're basically saying, God, you don't matter. All reverence for God is gone. All morality is gone. All fear of God is gone. All virtue is gone. And as our society has been doing for years, they want God to be gone. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Growing up, you probably grew up, if you're a little bit older, with not only the Pledge of Allegiance, but probably an opening prayer in your school. Some of you may be old enough to remember when they used to teach literacy and things like that using passages of Scripture to our children in our schools. Let's see, they've taken all that away because they don't want to worship the one true God. It's unbelievable to me that in this election, one of the candidates who is running for the office of President of the United States actually promised to fill his administration with a majority of Muslims. That's a big statement. What's that saying? That's saying, hey, we don't believe in the true God. We, we're going to... Muslims don't believe in the true God. Don't think that for a second. See, we, we want to be politically nice and say, well, if they want to worship, I'm sure if they're sincere. No. God says, if you're not worshiping me, you're, you're, you're not worshiping the true God. And that's the cycle of history of nations. In, in Acts chapter 14, verse 16, it says, God has allowed all the nations to go their own way. That's what God has allowed. And it's the way of destruction, my friends. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks in Romans chapter 1. He says, they knew God, they glorified him not as God, For the wrath of God was unleashed on them. God gave them over to lust and impurity. God gave them over to unlawful, degrading passions. Women with women and men with men. God gave them over to a, listen, depraved mind. That means you're not thinking correctly. There's something wrong in your thinking. And they heartily approved behaviors that they knew led them to judgment. See, this is where we live today. There's only one true God. He demands that everyone worship him. Individuals for individual salvation, but even nations are commanded to recognize him for the national temporal blessing. And when a government separates from God, and separates from God's law, as we know it to be in Scripture and in the Bible, and even separates from his people. Separation of what? Church and state. Oh, you can't mix those. What does it do? It invites judgment. Not only on a personal scale, but on a national scale. That's where we're at today. And it's unavoidable. Because God is immutable. God doesn't change. He's the same God today as he was in the Old Testament. 
And when nations did not recognize him as the one true God, guess what? There were consequences. When government thinks it's only responsible is for the, the physical, material, social, temporary needs of its citizens, and it ignores the, the spiritual reality of the true God and the people's spiritual needs, when a nation becomes indifferent to the true God, becomes indifferent to his word and his law, it makes a grave mistake. And if it's not reversed, it will leave that nation to its own destruction. Just look at history. All you have to do is look at history. I mean, the notion of being a, quote, secular state, that's a lie. It's not, it's not true. How do we know that? Because the government itself is ordained by God. It's something that God set up. The reformers were right, by the way. They, they said basically the, the word of God, the law of God, has three uses. First of all, it's to show the sinner what holiness was like. That's what the law of God is. It's to show the sinner what holiness is like. By the way, this isn't in your outline. This is all, I kind of put this together this morning. So we'll get to the outline, but right now this is introductory material. So the first use of the law is to show the sinner what holiness is like, that they could come to the end of their own sin and receive the free gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to awaken the sinner. See, this is a problem with our, a lot of our churches today and their evangelism tactics. What do they do? They turn to sinners and they say, don't you want to be happy in Jesus? Well, who in their right mind wouldn't say, do you want to go to heaven or hell? I mean, who in their right mind would say, well, no, I want to go to heaven. Oh, okay, just say this little prayer. Welcome to the family. They have no concept of their own sin. They have no concept of God's judgment. Everything's, you know, registers with a little happy face. When in fact, when you read the law of God, you realize how far, far short you fall when it comes to maintaining the standard of God. And you say, well, what is the standard of God? What does he demand for someone to go to heaven? Jesus himself said, he, he demands perfection. You have to be perfect. Well, I can't do that. Exactly. That's why God gave us the law. Because when you start to read through the law, even the Ten Commandments, you're not going to get too far down the list before I blew that one. <laughs> So it shows us our need of a Savior because we can't save ourselves. Secondly, the second use of the law, according to the Reformers, was not just to show sinner, sinners their sinfulness and God's holiness to awake their hearts to sin and judgment, but also the second use of the law is then to become the standard of the believer's behavior as they live out their Christian life. As God sanctifies them, they look at God's law and they say, okay, wow, there's some things in my life that need to change. Even as a believer. We're not perfect. We have to be restrained. The sin in our life has to be strained, restrained by the boundaries of God's word. 
You don't just get to, because all your sins are forgiven, go out and live like however you want. That's why the Bible says bring every, what, thought into captivity. And then thirdly, the third use, not just to bring the sinner to salvation, to give a standard of living for the believer's life, but also is to restrain, listen, sin in society. I mean, where, why do you think it's, it's wrong for you to go kill your neighbor? Where do you think that came from? It didn't come from sinful men. It came from God's word. That's why when we looked last week at, at Romans 13, when it tells us every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from who? From God. God established government. And it says, government is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, he, Paul says, be afraid. I don't know if that's true anymore, to be honest. Seems like you can go out and do whatever you want in our society. They'd give you a little pat on the, the wrist and turn you loose to do more evil. But the role of government, the biblical role of government, it says, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, when you do something wrong in a, in a biblically set up government, you should be fearful. You should be fearful. And not just of God, but of the local government, because they are a minister of God. It says, an avenger who brings evil on the one who does evil. It's amazing, when you take God out of the picture, when you take God out of the picture of government, what do you end up with? You end up with a criminal justice system that's a mess. It's a mess. Because there's no right or wrong. What's wrong for one person is okay for another. We see that. Not, not even to mention the whole prison system and the way that's set up. What a ridiculous system. That's not biblical, by the way. You don't see that coming from Scripture. The way they dealt with criminals in Scripture, you did something wrong, then you were punished. You were punished publicly. But after the punishment, guess what? You were good to go. And maybe you had to make some restitution for the crime. But then you were encouraged to go back and be part of society again. And if you did it again, well, then the punishment would, would be more severe. But so, punishment was severe, and it was quick. You didn't have people locked up for years and years and years at the cost of the state and the government. I mean, it doesn't work. I'm not saying you should leave all the criminals free. We're beyond that. I'm just saying the whole concept is wrong because it's not biblical. What the Bible says is wrath comes on the one who does evil. And the executor of that wrath in a civil government is the government. So God's law, first of all, is designed to show sinners how far short we fall from God's holiness. How desperately we need a Savior, a Redeemer. 
Secondly, to provide a standard of behavior for us to live a Christian life. And thirdly, to restrain sin in society. See, as long as a society follows biblical law, there will be a restraint on sin. So you can look at it this way, that, that it has a, what you would call a, a personal um, purpose. A personal purpose. It helps us to see what, what in our own personal lives, what went wrong. But it also has a national purpose. It keeps us restrained from sin. So what are we saying? We're saying, first of all, there's no God except the God of the Bible. There's no true morality except the morality of the Bible. There's no true worship but the worship of the true and living and only Lord God, our Creator, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no personal blessing apart from him, that's for sure. But guess what? There's no national blessing apart from him either. There's no way to him except through Jesus Christ. There's no way to the Father except through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a society turns from the one true God, God will open them up to all kinds of false religions. All kinds of doctrines of demons. A society that turns from God will be open to all kinds of moralities. And all kinds of what? Immoralities. All kinds of perverse freedoms. All kinds of sexual preferences. All ideas and options are on the table. Doesn't matter whether they're lies or deceptions. There's no standard. It opens you up to all sin, all iniquity. A nation that turns from God will lose control of absolutely everything. I would say we're on the brink of that. Because chaos will begin to take over. And it will lead to anarchy. And anarchy usually leads to a a police state, right? Or a dictatorship. That's not how our country is set up to be run. And because we have a reprobate mind, we don't think about these things rationally. By removing the worship of the true God, by removing the authority of the word of God, by removing the, uh, the voice of his church, by removing the moral education of children, taking it from the family to people at school who have an agenda with your children's minds, by removing the gospel because, oh, it's too offensive. All those things lead to a a path that leads to national destruction. There's no way around it. I mean, just listen to what the Bible says about how we are to worship the true God. In Psalm 33, 8, it says, Let all the earth fear God. Not just Christians. Let all the earth fear God. Let all the earth fear the Lord, it says. Let all the nations of the world revere him. Or Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you nations. 
all you peoples, it says, and extol him, all you peoples. Now that has to come from where? Leadership. Psalm 72, 11 says this, listen, let all kings, doesn't matter what kind of people you are, what you worship. It says, let all kings bow down before him. Let all nations serve him. See, I want to consider this morning just some of the issues directly involved in this election. Because our two major political parties represent two radically different versions of our nation and its funeral, uh, future, or funeral. <laughs> you could say funeral, maybe, depending... Two different understandings of the role of government. Two different ways of reading the U.S. Constitution and two different moralities. First of all, we look at the subject matter of abortion and sanctification, uh, the sanctity of human life. You say, well, do you just vote on one issue? If it is, that's it. That's it. Hands down. Abortion is a great moral scar on modern society. And it is really to the great shame of the United States. Since Roe versus Wade, that decision in 1973, more than 61 million human lives have been extinguished in American wombs. And it's only possible because of the subversion of human dignity and the denial of the sanctity of life. Life doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, biblically-minded Christians understand that all human life is sacred. Amen? Because what? Because God created every single human being, what? In his image. And so protecting and respecting human life is the, the baseline responsibility of any government. But our two parties represent two diametrically opposed worldviews when it comes to human life and abortion. One party is committed to respect and defend life in the womb. The other is determined to support and defend abortion. The killing of the unborn child as an unconditional right. They even seek to coerce Americans who do not believe in abortion to use their taxes to pay for abortions against their own conscience. They're repealing the Hyde Amendment. That's what they want to do. They oppose all restrictions on abortion. Effectively, up until the moment, the second of birth. But even the governor in Virginia said, no, that's not not far enough. We think a mother should be able, after the baby's born, to take that life if if they want to. Think about that. Think about it. We are a nation confronting the reality of legal infanticide. The logic Denying human dignity at the beginning of life will lead to undermining everyone's dignity at every stage of life. 
So there's that on the table, and we're going to revisit that in a second. But then you also have the family, the natural family, starting with a husband and wife and their children. This is the most basic unit of our human society. And the responsibility of government is to what? Respect marriage and respect family. Because why? They existed before government. They existed way before government. This means respecting marriage as the union of a man and a woman for life. And respecting parents as those who are entrusted with the raising of their children. But this nation is radically divided between those who honor this limited and and respectful role of government and those who see the state, the government, the village, as some would say, as a regime of experts, the ultimate authority, even in matters of God, that he has delegated, delegated to the family, it doesn't matter. They know better. See, every society orders itself by its vision of the family across the, the globe. And what we see now is when the biblical understanding of the family is rejected by society, or it's society that claims to know better than God himself, then you have problems. I mean, just think of the hostility that's directed toward our families today. The idea that there you 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 have to you know you can't have public choice in school you know you don't get to choose where your your child gets to go they don't want that they're against charter schools they're against a lot of different things they're definitely against homeschool why because they can't indoctrinate the kids <laughs> and if you don't think your children are being indoctrinated in public education you're sorely mistaken. They have taken God out of the picture. That should tell you something. One side is our, in our great divide, resists this hostility towards the family. The other side wants to liberate humanity from the constraints of the natural family. The parents don't know what's best for their kids. We need to tell you what's best. And the tax policies are going down that road. Well, not just the idea of abortion in the family, but also you think of human sexuality and gender, all that, LGBTQ, revelation, all that stuff. It's hit our society like a tsunami. And what is it doing? It's, it's, a, re, it's a revolt against human nature. That's what it is. I mean, marriage has been defined. But morality has been revolutionized, and the ordering of human relations has been turned on its side. It's been turned upside down. And the most radical front of this revolution is the transgender movement that now demands us to reject the gender binary, whatever you really are, according to your DNA. Well, that no longer holds true. We're now to embrace the total fluidity concept of human gender and personal identity. Whatever you want to be, you can be. It's, it's not, that's not science. I'm sorry. 
And it's getting to the point now where even in sports, you have men that are declaring themselves women. And they're allowed to enter women's sporting events. And guess who's winning? <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket science, right? I mean, they have an advantage. Just the way they're created. That's not right. We're becoming a society of total confusion. I mean, how many acronyms can you have for this stuff? It's crazy. Look it up on the internet. It goes on and on and on. Total confusion. Confusion about what it means to be human, male and female. There's a movement to deny a biology, deny human nature. And it's progressing with unbelievable speed. On one side is the polit- of the political divide is there's a party that's very enthusiastic about pushing this revolution. And using the power of the government to advance it, by the way. And the other side, from what I see, is trying to resist it. That divide is at stake in this election. I think also religious liberty, the dangers of religious liberty we see today would, I think it would shock the framers of our Constitution. We are now more aggressively hostile to religious freedom than ever before. You see that just with this pandemic. You're going to close the churches down. Never, ever. And it comes out of a a very rapid secularizing culture. I mean, down the road, the things are in question. Will Christian schools have the right to operate under Christian principles? If you're a small business owner, we already see this fleshed out. Do you have to be compelled to celebrate a same-sex marriage? Whether you're taking a photo as a photographer or baking a cake? Will the Christian gospel or the preaching of the Bible be classified as hate speech? It already has by some, by the way. Southern California, they demanded transcripts from pastors of their sermons. Obviously, they didn't give them. (laughs) See, these aren't hypothetical questions. This is where we're living. And every one of these issues has been in the headlines in recent years. The political divide in the nation extends to these headlines. And I think given the leftward shift in our culture, this pattern will grow more and more acute in every election coming up. America's cherished first freedom is at stake. And then you look at the courts. The courts. I mean, I think we have to go back to civics class. We have to understand what our nation is. 
or a constitutional republic. What that is, it's a state where the officials are elected as representatives of the people and they must govern according to the existing constitutional law that limits the government's power over its citizens. That's our current form of government in the United States. And by the way, the founding fathers did not intend it to be a democracy. But that's where we're going. A republic, by definition, has two basic principles. First of all, it's controlled by law. It's controlled by written law. It does not control law. It's controlled by law. Secondly, it recognizes the private, independent, sovereign nature of each person, whether it's a man or a woman, of competent age and capacity. And so a republic must be representative in nature. And so a constitutional republic is a government created and controlled at least by the law. Which is, what is our law? The Constitution. The Constitution of the United States of America was in law a foundation based on the Bible. The Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, those documents recognize man's sovereignty, the divine nature of man's creation, the divine right to life, liberty the means of acquiring and possessing property, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, the, na- the nation's founders would be shocked beyond belief to be told that the federal courts have become a major issue at stake in a national election. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Alexander Hamilton said this. He described the courts as the least dangerous branch of government. Do you think that's true anymore? (laughs) And for the last several decades, the federal courts have usurped the democratic process, moral and political progressive, frustrated in their inability to win legislative process. They can't pass the laws they want because the people don't want them passed. What do they do? They decide to transform the courts into engines of moral and cultural revolution. And you have people that believe in a living constitution. And what do they do? They invent new rights. They're not listed there in the constitution, but they, oh, it's your constitutional right to have an abortion, to kill your unborn baby. It's not said, it doesn't say that anywhere in the constitution. It's your constitutional right to have a same-sex marriage. See, as Americans, we do not elect federal judges. But we do elect a president. And it's the president of this United States that has the sole power of judicial nomination. All the way up to the Supreme Court. State by state, we also elect those who go to the Senate. And guess what the Senate does? We see it right now, right? They confirm the judicial appointment. See, the future of our federal courts is at stake in this election. We're talking about having a kingdom mindset. 
We're talking about the partnership that Christians have been allowed, have been encouraged and are responsible to join God in regard to the expanding His role in society through civil government. Remember what we said about civil government. It's the biblical role of civil government to maintain a safe, just, righteous, and compassionately responsible environment for freedom to flourish. The government is supposed to be about protecting the righteous and punishing the evildoers. So when we talk about voting, we have to deal with the issue of life. We have to. Because that's the role of government, is it not? To protect our lives. I mean, when you consider your vote, you have to raise the question about what is life? Because that's the divinely ordained responsibility of government, to protect life. And unfortunately, most discussions when we get to this topic of life, they never start in the right place. (laughs) They always start with somebody's opinion somewhere. They don't start with what the Bible says about life. The idea that God is the creator of life. So we have to start with God and his word. In Genesis 1.26, when God created mankind, it says, Then God said, let us make man in what? Our image, after our likeness. So in the discussion of life, in, in any human form, it starts with the idea of the image of God. Imago Dei comes from the Latin version of the Bible, translated the image of God. See, when you don't start with the image of God, then you make life whatever you want it to be. Not what God has created and stamped it to be. In Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, the psalmist says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Somebody's telling me a couple weeks ago they were up in the mountains away from everybody, and they were just awestruck as they laid on the, in their sleeping bag and looked up at the, the evening sky. They were blown away. Just all the star, everything that they saw was so glorious. Verse 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Listen, verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. See, human beings are majestic. They're glorious in the creative genius of Almighty God. They're not an afterthought. We're not just another form of creation. We are the spectacular masterpiece of the hand of God. And what makes man spectacular, or as the psalmist says, the glorious, majestic, full of splendor, is that Mankind, it says, male and female, what do, what do they have in common? They have the mark of God stamped on them by their creator. Imago Dei, the image of God. 
That means that every human being has a divine design. This means that every human being is sacred. Why? Because they have the stamp of God upon them. This means that every person created was created for community. Since God is a triune being, one God composed of co-equal persons who are one in essence while distinct in personality, so we were created one for another. It means that every person, what, matters. Every person matters. It's significant. From the womb to the tomb, every person matters. You ever met somebody and they they look at you and they go, you know, you remind me of somebody. I just can't think of who it is, you know, and they struggle with it. Well, guess what? Guess what God did when he created mankind? He created mankind to remind creation of God. We're created in the image of God. You and I were created to be divine reminders because we have that Imago Dei, that image of God stamped on us. And do you know what value that gives to creation? It gives tremendous value. Have you ever gone into a name brand store when you're shopping? I mean, just pick the brand. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's whatever. It's a name brand store, right? And you look at the items and you're going, hmm, that's kind of pricey. And you pull out your phone. You're like, eh, let's see if I can find something like this on Amazon. <laughs> and you find something on Amazon that's not a name brand, but it looks almost identical. It probably works the same. But what? It's a quarter of the price. Why? Because it's not a name brand. You can shop around and find something similar in design that's a generic brand. And guess what? It's a whole lot cheaper, isn't it? Why? Because that name brand gives it value. See, we need to understand we're not just a man or woman in the generic sense. That's not how God created us to be. You were created in the image of the Almighty God. That means that he put his name brand on you. He put his name on you. And he has done that to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. That means when they come into the world, they are full of dignity. They're full of splendor. They're full of their own uniqueness and their own glory as part of God's creation. Now, as we look at them, yeah, we're looking through a broken mirror. (laughs) Our, Our humanity has been damaged, right? We're tainted with sin. But we were created to reflect God. We were created to represent God in all of life. That's what the kingdom is all about, reflecting the image of the Almighty God, which means the more you understand what he's like, the better you can reflect him, the better you can represent that image of God. It's stamped on your life. But there's also an enemy out there, right? Seeking to distort the image. Seeking to distort the image through sin and evil. So that God doesn't look good. By the way we carry out our own humanity in our own life. 
But see, when you start talking about life, you don't just start talking about life. (laughs) You have to start talking about the life giver. You have to. You have to start talking about the manufacturer of life. You have to start talking about the one who made it. The Imago Dei. When God created man, he created him with a mind to reflect him in all of history. Now that means when we fail to give dignity to humanity, and in whatever way we do that, guess what? We have not only insulted that person, but we have insulted the creator of that person. Whenever life is destroyed illegitimately, whenever life is downgraded illegitimately, we have said to our creator God, you know what, you're a bad manufacturer. (laughs) You don't know how to produce human beings. You don't know how to produce people in your image. And guess what, it's not worth protecting this. And your image is not worth emulating. And to show you how, and to show you, God, how we feel about you, since we can't get at you, we're going to get at them. We're going after your creation. And what we do to them will show how we feel about you. You ever thought about that? Because every time life is illegitimately removed or downgraded, you have insulted, you have attacked the very God that created it. Until we see this issue of life, as we've said, men are created by their creator with life, until we see it through God's eyes, then we will not start in the right place. And over and over again, the Bible is clear. What does it say? Thou shalt not kill. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about homicide, suicide, patricide, matricide, genocide, infanticide, or feticide. It doesn't matter what kind of side it is. God says it's wrong, period. Why? Because it's an attack on him. That's why he says in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. He says, when you take a person's life, you have removed your own life because you have attacked the image of God. God views it as a personal insult. And when life is not given the value he gives to it, because what you said is, you know, What God did is not worth protecting. Any discussion of life has to start there. It has to start with that divine mark of God. And the job of government, the Bible says, is to protect that life, not to take it prematurely. That's why safety is often called by a government the first, what, responsibility. That's the first responsibility of any government is to keep its people safe. To deal with enemies within and without. Why? Because life is worth living. Why is that? Because the manufacturer's reputation is worth protecting. And when you leave God out of government and life, 
Its value gets downgraded. It gets reduced. It gets dishonored. It gets attacked. So when you think of kingdom voting, you must think about the question of life. Well, what do we mean by life? Quickly. What do we include in this thing called life? Big perspective. It includes pre-born life and post-born life. Both. And unfortunately, in our society today, we have abortion on both sides of that. I mean, everybody's talking about abortion before birth. But there's a lot of, a lot of abortion after birth. People are just not cared for. Thrown aside. See, the problem with life is that we choose a term insurance policy. You know what a term insurance policy is? We don't choose the whole life insurance policy. And so we don't view all of life in terms of the image of God. And as a result, Christians take sides. God has not divided this. In Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, listen to what the psalmist says. It says, For you, God, form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's not just a mass in the mother's womb that's not a being. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, listen, every one of them, the days that were formed of me, when as yet there was not one of them. See, that's a whole life agenda, beloved. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am a creation of God before I was even ever born. Not only that, but God had a purpose and a plan for me before I ever came out of the womb. It says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God projected our lives. He was taking care of us in the, in the womb. Intricately, it says. Baby's heart begins to beat after 18 days. 18 days. Brain waves begin to function, they say, after 40 days. Babies express their own humanity, even in the womb. Why? Because God had days outlined for them. God had stuff planned for that unborn child. And to get rid of it on that side of life, to cut it short, is an attack on its creator. See, unless you understand both sides of the maternity ward, both sides of the creative genius of God, you won't have a biblical view when it comes to your role of government, you'll have a partisan view or a personal view. But you won't be dealing with life the way God deals with it. Because he does deal with it in the womb. 
What is a major issue today is the issue of abortion. It shouldn't be the major issue, but it is. Not if God is involved in government, because God has already spoken. He has already settled the case on the issue of pre-birth abortion. Job chapter 10, verses 8 to 12, it says, Your hands fashioned and made me. Psalm 22, 9 says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Or Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Listen, before they came together, she was found to be, what's it say? With a blob? An unformed substance? No, it says with child. The angel of the Lord told Joseph that Mary is carrying a child, not a non-person. She was carrying a baby, a child. I mean, can you imagine if Mary had an abortion? Now, we know theologically that can't happen, but I'm just saying. The Bible is clear that in the womb is life. God is so committed to life in the womb that he prescribes its value before it ever gets into the womb. In Isaiah 49, it says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Or in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do you understand? Before there is even a fetus in the womb, God has a purpose and a plan for that living, living being. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you. Galatians 1.15, but when he who had set me apart, Paul says, before I was born. See, there's a plan, in other words, when God allows a baby to be conceived. There's a plan, there's a purpose. And there's no tolerance for even any believer to say, well, it's okay if this happens or that happens. No. God has a purpose. That's because he had a plan before it even got to the womb. So whenever you cut that short, what what are you doing? You're interfering with the program, the purposes of Almighty God. So when the government talks about it, it's okay to abort a child. It's okay to attack God. That's what they're saying. We have to protest that. Why? Because Scripture says that when you shed innocent blood, I mean, what could be more innocent than the blood of an unborn baby? It says more innocent blood will be shed. When you stamp your stamp of approval on something so hideous as killing an unborn child. I mean, expect crime to go up. Expect conflict to come. Why? Because God doesn't like being attacked. 
When you attack him in the womb, you have come against him, and he doesn't like it. That's why he said in Genesis 9, you attack my life, I'm going to attack you. I don't want to be under the attacking arm of God. I don't want our nation to be under the judgment of God. So when you want the government to keep you safe, they need to keep you safe by keeping God happy. (laughs) The government will keep you safe by keeping God happy, not by legalizing the death of unborn children. Do you ever go to a picture framing shop or art store or something? You buy a frame, right? And usually the frame, you know, maybe it's a frame you put on your table or on a shelf or something. But usually it has a picture in it, right? And usually it's you know, a pretty good-looking person, male, female, whatever, child. And you take that picture home. And I've only seen this one time, by the way, uh, that somebody didn't do this. <laughs> but when you take the picture home, what do you do? You open the back of the frame. And what? You take that picture out right? You, you take it out. Why? Because you don't know the person. Why would you have that person? There was one person used to be in our church. <laughs> I, I was visiting one day, and I said, oh, I, I've never seen that before. Is that, is that a new picture? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got that frame. I said, oh, cool. So I went over. I'm looking at the picture. I'm like, no. And I know the person's family, right? And I was like, this doesn't look like anybody in their family. What's going on here, right? So I, I asked. I said, well, who is this a picture of? Oh, I don't know. I just like the frame, <laughs> It's like, you don't know who the picture is? No, it's nobody. It's a generic picture. But they hung it up there like it was, you know, something they were. But we don't do that, right? You take that picture out, what do you do? You crumble it up and you throw it in the trash. Why? Because it's generic. You have no attachment to it. And you put another picture, a picture of yourself or a picture of your family. You don't hang it up with a generic picture in it. That wouldn't make any sense. That generic picture has no value. You hang it up with a picture of something that's precious to you. Someone that's precious to you. Someone that you don't want to lose sight of. The thing I want you to understand is nobody is created as a generic picture. We all have the mark of God upon us as we go into the frame of life. And we are to be held to the highest esteem Because when each life was created, they were created with a crown. They were created with a recognition of their divinely ordained dignity. And I think one of the other arguments is, well, you know, it's the woman's body. (laughs) It's the woman's body. Well, just think of this logically. First of all, if you're carrying a boy, there are parts in your body that don't belong to you (laughs) if you're a female and you're carrying a boy. You can't equate equate that with you. It's its own distinct person. Secondly, we have established that it is the creation of God. Just because it's your body doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want with it. That's the problem with our society today. That's how they think. Matter of fact, government makes laws all the time, does it not? That limit, put boundaries on what we can do with our bodies. 
I mean, if you want to go drink and drive, go ahead. But guess what? You're going to be in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. Why? Because the law says you can't do that with your body. It's illegal to do that with your body. Just because it's your body doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. We have created boundaries on our freedoms. Besides from that, you're talking about a different genetic code, a different DNA. It's a different person, completely. So it's not just about you. But unfortunately, the selfishness that we have today in the world and in society has reduced and dumbed down the dignity of life because it's dumbed down the Imago Dei, the image of God. The image of God that is involved in the process of birth. So, you don't want to give people the freedom to do wrong, even if they're doing wrong with their own bodies. It's still not right. You have laws, this structure, good and bad. And remember, God says, I'm the author of what's good and bad, not you. I'm the author of what's right and wrong. You don't get to choose that. If you want me to be involved in your government... Now, if you want me to get out of the picture, God says, okay, you watch and see how chaotic your culture becomes overnight. So now you have all manner of chaos because of the attack on God. See, Christian voters must understand that every vote matters all the way from the county commissioner to the Oval Office we need to remember that we are voting on issues, not on individuals. I've never seen personality become such a big issue with people. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you don't do that in real life, do you? I mean, maybe you have a boss that's a real jerk. But he's a good boss. <laughs> I mean, he knows what he's doing. He provides for the company. Okay. You may not hang around with him at the, the coffee machine or the water cooler, but you know what? You're, you're glad he's running the company. See, we need to vote for an ideology, a worldview that is closer to Scripture. And in my viewpoint, there's only one party, one platform that has a place for the Bible, that has a place for God, that understands the necessity of a family, that understands the role of government biblically, that they're primarily to carry a sword to threaten evildoers and protect those who do well. There's only one. Every vote in this decision about the future of our society matters. Each election serves to define us as a people. Character matters. Personality matters. History matters. And the issues we've spoken about this morning matter. But Christians must know that the issues discussed here are genuinely and urgently important. Every one of these issues is at stake in this election. So I pray that your, vo- your voice and your vote will count. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We're such blessed people to be able to come around your holy word. It bears upon our hearts and our souls. It brings conviction. It brings blessing. 
Some it may bring fear, others joy, some judgment, forgiveness, grace, the threat of wrath, the promise of blessing. Lord, we pray for our country during this time. We pray for our leaders. We pray for their salvation, first of all. That's the most important thing. We pray that those who are not honoring you and doing evil, pray that they will be replaced. Pray that you will be graciously just gracious to us by providing us an environment of righteousness, of justice, of truthfulness. We don't even have a right to ask that as a country. It'd be your, only your grace that brings that. But we know very clearly you will not bless this country unless this country meets the conditions for blessing. And we pray, Lord, as a church, that it would start with us. That's why we need to be the salt and the light in this earth in which we live. We're called to let our light shine before men that they may see the transforming power of the gospel in order that we might confront sin and evil on every level, including leadership. There's no perfect candidate. And we know that politics isn't the answer in the end, but you've allotted to us a responsibility of stewardship as we live in this free country. We pray that we would see a demonstration of joy and peace and hope that fills our hearts through Christ. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be together today. Pray you bless us across the way. Bless the food we partake of as well. Pray that we would just be committed afresh to live for your glory and your honor. Proclaim Christ as Lord. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's